Big Conversations Little Bar with your hosts Randy Florence and Patrick Evans featuring candid conversations with the Coachella Valley's most interesting and influential people. Pull up a bar stool and enjoy Big Conversations Little Bar. Welcome to another edition of Big Conversations Little Bar. I'm Patrick Evans and I'm here with my co-host, sometimes referred to as sidekick. It's not right, but you know. Jimmy Olsen. <laughs> Randy Florence. How are you doing, Patrick? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing awesome. We get to do this all the time. Nobody well, has stopped us yet. We're Big Conversations Little Bar and so named because Skip Page uh, hosts us each week here at Little Bar, and I think one of the things that is fun and a little unique about our podcast, if the content isn't terribly interesting, sometimes at least the location is, yeah. because this is a great place to come. But today, the content is going to be spectacular, because we have a gentleman who has worked for nearly 37 years here in the Valley at the Desert Sun, and he is a household name here. What's his name? <laughs> You invited him. Larry Bohannon is our guest today, and uh, I need to take this opportunity to publicly apologize on the podcast for standing you up at lunch uh, pre-pandemic. Yes. We were supposed to meet for lunch. We were going to have lunch together. <laughs> and, and I didn't put it suddenly... on my calendar, and then he calls me. He's like, where are you? And I'm like, oh my God, I'm still in bed. Like It was, it was bad. I want to tell you what, what to- told me that Larry is about the nicest guy I've ever met. Because he had a chance to throw me under the bus a few years ago. And he didn't take it? No. A few years ago, I interviewed Larry on another podcast that I had. And it was, there was a golf tournament taking place in the Valley at that point. Yeah. And I referred to it for almost a solid hour oh. as the Anna Inspiration. Anna Inspiration. <laughs> and not once did Larry call me on it. Even though I listened to the podcast again this morning, and several times he said ANA inspiration. He's trying to help you. And I never picked up on it. <laughs> the reason I didn't was because so many people called it the ANA. They didn't know it used to be the dinosaur. And they would come up to me and say, what is this ANA tournament? And if I had a dollar for every time somebody had told me, asked me that, I could have retired a couple of years ago. <laughs> well, it's also reminded me that at some point today, I want to talk to you about this new LIV golf tour. That's uh, sure. That's out there. You and everybody else on the planet wants to talk to me about the it. live tour. Anyway, Larry, thank you for being on the show today. We're really excited to have you here. You two have known each other significantly longer than I have. Uh, yeah, I mean, we work in the ostensibly the same business. Business, and, media. And, uh, you know, I, so my first wife worked at the Desert Sun, and I got to know Larry a little bit because I would spend some time over at the paper for, for that reason. And uh, But I also uh, have been an avid reader of his for a long time since I moved to the Valley. Uh, now I don't get the paper, but because... When, when the ex-wife left, so did the subscription. That is a whole different story. <laughs> you didn't um, get half of it? <laughs> yeah, but could I the, interest you in a subscription? <laughs> I mean, that's really why Larry's here both, today. We have both print and we have digital available. Digital uh, indeed. Yeah. Uh, so as we record this, we're in Masters Week. Yes. Um, and I got a few questions around Masters, sure. if we can. So first of all, can Tiger win this year? No. No. Um, here's the thing about Tiger. He, if you just stand him up and have him hit a golf ball, he's fine. You go, wow, that was terrific. Now walk 72 holes. 
over four days over a very hilly golf course. Augusta National is far hillier than it appears. You don't really notice TV. it, do you, on TV? Um, and at some point, you know, he can make the cut. But since he's come back from this uh, uh, automobile accident. And, you know, tremendous damage to his right leg, his right ankle. That was such a significant injury. Yeah. I mean, it's remarkable that he can stand up. That he's even there. Yeah. But the the pattern has been he plays well on Thursday, he plays decently on Friday, and then on Saturday and Sunday he disappears because he starts to limp and it's just really hard. Also, he's not playing that much golf. He has played exactly one PGA tournament this year. And that was at uh, the L.A. Open, or what used to be the L.A. Open, now the Genesis Invitational, hosted by Tiger Woods. Uh, And that's just not enough time and not enough repetitions to be ready to play golf uh, at the highest level and win. You can make the cut, maybe. You can show up and not embarrass yourself, but you're not going to win. Who's your favorite? I've said this for like 10 years in a row, and I've been wrong 10 years in a row, but I think one of these days Rory McIlroy is going to win that golf tournament. Uh, he's playing very well right now. He and John Rahm are the best two players in the world, and Scotty Scheffler is right there with them. Yeah. Um, Scheffler won last year. People don't win the Masters two years in a row. The last guy to do that was Tiger Woods in 2001-2002, so that's more than 20 years ago. Um, I just think that one of these days, plus I think with all this stuff with the Live Golf Tour, uh, Rory has taken a real leadership stand Mm -hmm. uh, with the PGA Tour and talked about what's right and wrong with the tour and why these people who went to the Live Tour were wrong and everything like that. And I think it would be a very popular victory among PGA Tour players and fans for Rory to win that golf tournament. And complete the career Grand Slam. He would then at that would be huge. He will have won all four of the majors. How old is McElroy now? I think he's thirty-four. Yeah. So I mean, he's still certainly. He would be in the prime of his career if yeah. he hadn't been so good so early. Right. Yeah. I mean, he was a kid with a, a yeah. youngster. You know. Um, would he, it? Would it? Would it really mean anything if one of the live? golfers won the Masters? I mean, there's yeah. a lot of conversation about it, but would it actually mean something to the game of golf? I think it would mean something to the PGA Tour. Um, you know, the PGA Tour, if you if you watch PGA Tour golf this, this year on TV, uh, there's a lot of promos. The best players are here. Best players play here. Right. Well, what if they don't play there? Right. What if one of the best plays on the Live Tour? Yeah, you know. Now, the, I think the Live Tour guys have the same problem that Tiger has. They haven't played that much golf. They've only had three events on their tour uh, this year. Yeah. One in Mexico, one in Arizona, and then just last week in Orlando. What, what in the field? What's the crossover? There's 18 players on the Live Tour, and there's 89 players, I think, in the Masters. 88, I think, maybe because Aaron Wise withdrew. And all of the 18 on the Live Tour are playing in the Masters? Uh, no, there's there's 48 players on the Live Tour. Oh. Oh, but eight, 18, 18 of are, them have qualified gotcha. to okay. play in the Masters in some way, shape, or form. Gotcha. Uh, Phil Mickelson, for instance, has won the Masters three times. He's exempt for life there. Right. Uh, that's right. Reed, Dustin Johnson, 
uh, guys like that uh, are exempt at the Masters for Life, and the Masters has said, yeah, we will, we will do that. There are other guys who have qualified in other ways, but uh, so there are 18 of them. There. So there are 48 players on the Live Tour. Each Live event is 48 players. 54 holes of golf, no cut. Loud music. Loud music. It's a rave. Lots at of a money. Golf course. Lots of money. Lots of. Oh yeah. Brooks Kepka won last week in Orlando. He won four million dollars. Uh, compare that to what John Rahm won at, when he played at the American Express this year and won it in January, which was I think one point six million. That being said, I'd be other happy than with Brooke, either number. Yeah. yeah. I mean, <laughs> other than Brooke, I think I only saw one name in the top seven or eight that I recognized. There are a lot of guys on that tour who came from the Asian tour mm -hmm. and who've not been on the PJ tour at all. There are a lot of players who were young players who never get a chance to get on at the PJ tour. Um, and there are some guys who were PJ tour players who just were not that significant. Yeah. Um, um, uh, a guy I knew, a guy I know from Idlewild named Brendan Steele, uh, who in December <laughs> at the media day for the American Express said, I've never been asked to go there, but if I was, I don't think I'd be interested. And, you know, if those guys are over there, they have to stay over there. They can't think that they can come back and play on the PGA Tour. And 10 weeks later, Brendan was signing with the, <laughs> with the Live Tour. <laughs> And frankly, in in three events, he won. He's won more money this year than he won on the PGA Tour last year. Yeah. Doesn't make it more significant. Um, it does to the players, but it does. <laughs> to but you know, Brendan's a guy. He's got a wife. He's got two young kids, and he's won three times on the PGA Tour. But he hadn't won on the PGA Tour in like seven years, and he wasn't going to. He's on the he's on the downside of up, as they say. Uh, so these guys come in and say, "We'll give you X number of dollars. Here's your contract, guaranteed. You can win some money." And uh, it's hard to walk away from that unless you're concerned about the source of the money. Right. Well, you know, you you spend your entire life focused on one thing. From a, you're a little kid, you hit a ball down the yeah. fairway. You've never been political. You've never worried about any of no. that. And now all of a sudden you have an opportunity to take care of generations of your family and you're being asked to make political considerations on right. it. It's an odd position to put those people in. Well, I, don't, I, don't, I, I, would, I would say, I don't want to delve too deeply into it, but I think it's more than just political. I think there are... Oh, there's moral, moral issues, but no doubt about it. Moral implications sure. as yeah. well. And you have to kind of be willing and I'm not saying I wouldn't but you have to be willing to hold your nose to take that money yeah well it's a lot of money and let's, let's talk about this you brought up a name Phil mm -hmm. who's taken a lot of heat yes and, and maybe what five six years ago Phil kind of owned this town during yeah. the American Express what's Phil Mickelson to the Coachella Valley now I think he still owns a house here, uh, or a place um, over in La Quinta, but he's banned from the tournament uh, because of his, uh, he's not banned, he's suspended, um, 
he was the host here uh, for a couple of years, three years, really. Although that the was third big, year, he did nothing. <laughs> right. But that was a big deal to have that name attached yeah. to our local tournament. That was a, that was a short of short of Tiger. There has not been a player in the last 20 years who has been more significant to the PGA Tour than Phil Mickelson. He's a World Golf Hall of Famer. He's won six majors. He's won 45 times. I think that's tied for ninth on the all-time list. Um, and he's very popular with people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Most of those are people who don't know him <laughs> and haven't had to deal with him very much <laughs> because right. he can be something else entirely. Uh, and it was a, so it was a big deal. Yeah. I mean, the tournament of Bob Hope had a, a new host, you know, and and it was Phil Mickelson, and Phil could do this for a long time, even when he was past his competitiveness. And he's gone. It was gone after three years. So uh, I thought hurt that hurt the tournament in a way because yeah. it, it it hurts your uh, it hurt, hurts your ability to market off of a very famous person. This tournament has always marketed off of famous people, whether it was Bob Hope, whether it was George Lopez for a couple of years, Bill Clinton for a couple of years, then Phil Mickelson comes in. It's always need. It's always had that star power because that's what the desert is, man. Yeah, it's star power and it's show business and golf and presidents and all of this stuff. And uh, suddenly they found themselves with no Mickelson. And how do we move forward? Well, they moved forward by not not replacing him, right? And and saying, this is how all the other PGA Tour events do this. Let's try it here and see if it works. And uh, I mean, with very few exceptions. I mentioned Tiger at, uh, in Los Angeles uh, hosting that tournament. Uh, Jack Nicholas hosts Memorial. Arnold Palmer used to host his before he died uh, in, in Bay Hill in Orlando. But that's about it. But the Amex here does something, and I, I don't know because I'm, I've only been to a few golf tournaments outside of here. Mm-hmm. But the bringing in the big names for entertainment right. in the evening... On the golf course, right? Uh, that's as much of a draw for for much of the valley as the golf is. Um, just before the pandemic, we remember that, right? Um, <laughs> oh, there was a they pandem- put they had two concerts. One night it was Stevie Nicks, mm-hmm. and one night it was Luke Bryan. I remember trying to get out of there that night, and they had, <laughs> by their own estimates. They say it was 20,000 people, but they kind of admit now it was 25. Because there were a lot of people who drove into PGA West to see their friends parked at their friends' houses and just walked to the, to the uh, venue uh, on the driving range there at PGA West. So they think they had 25,000 people a night there. And then the pandemic hit, and they had two years to try and figure out how to get the traffic in and out of uh, PGA West, which has one road in and one road out. Uh, Jefferson, basically. and uh, But even this last year, uh, they had uh, Darius Rutger and Gwen Stefani. And, Gwen Stefani. and I, I was really concerned about Gwen Stefani because she doesn't seem to be any part of the demographic yeah. of that golf tournament. Yeah, I don't think Blake's a big golfer. Um, no, <laughs> he didn't show either. Um, but she did pretty well. They, they, they got about 13,000 people, 14,000 people that night. All right. 
So you have 13 or 14,000 people watching the concert. Yeah. What do you have watching the tournament during the day in the gallery? Probably about 13. Okay. <laughs> Maybe a little less. Um, you know, the tickets were $79. And you get golf and Inclusive. the concert. Yeah. Right. Okay. So what happens is, you know, some people show up early, watch the golf, go home, watch it on TV. Some people show up late, watch the golf, stay for the concert. Some people ignore the golf altogether and just show up for the concert. Yeah. And that's okay because they're trying to raise funds for local charities. That's really what the golf tournament is about, is raising, you know, in 65, 64 years, $64 million. And that's pretty good when you consider the first year they only raised 15000 and they didn't really even do that. They borrowed the money and told people <laughs> that they this would proceed from the tournament because if they didn't, they probably wouldn't have had a second tournament. Second tournament. <laughs> so, you know, but I also think that the uh, securing of Amex as a sponsor, yeah, huge, was a, was a huge deal because huge. the sponsorships had been transitory and not as big a name. Well, you know, Chrysler was the uh, was a sponsor for a long time from the '80s into the two, late 2000s. Yes. And then uh, you may recall the car companies in this country were taking bailout money in 2008 and 2009. And it was a bad look. (laughs) It was bailout money and and sponsor a golf tournament. It was kind of an insignificant amount of money (laughs) when you consider it to be advertising and marketing money. But it was such a bad look. Yeah. And so Chrysler left. And they did the tournament for a few years on their own. And their uh, reserves were just decimated. And then they got Humana to show up. Uh, the uh, commissioner of the PGA Tour at the time, Tim Fincham, put together this coalition, if you will, of Desert Classic Charities, which was a local charitable arm, and Humana, and the PGA Tour, and the Clinton Foundation. Well... <laughs> There were some people who were not crazy about the Clinton Foundation in this valley because this valley still remains uh, more conservative than a lot of places. And Bill Clinton's a lot of things, Hillary Clinton's a lot of things, but they are not well-loved in some areas of this valley. (laughs) Let's put it just that way. But you could argue that Bill Clinton's more conservative than a lot. Yes, but he's a more... (laughs) Yes. Um, we're not getting political. Well, we're not going to get political. <laughs> no. But um, they were, and the Clinton Foundation was involved for five years. Although one year Bill took off because he was he was campaigning for Hillary for president. Yeah. She lost, if I remember correctly. He should have stayed um, here. And, <laughs> and then Humana left after four years because uh, Obamacare came in. And suddenly Humana wasn't trying to sell insurance to corporations it was now a marketplace an individual marketplace thing and the golf tournament didn't work with that their their marketing they also had their uh, president ceo retire and the new guy came in he was a tennis guy so the golf tournament doesn't necessarily work for him so they leave and then career builder comes in and career builder never had a clue what to do with this golf tournament no and so they were here really only for three years. And then it was one year without anybody. And then American Express comes in. 
American Express is the ideal sponsor for any golf tournament. First of all, everybody knows American Express. It's name recognition is off the charts. Yeah. It is a billion-dollar global um, financial company. Um, and for them to be signed up through 2008, uh, 28 now, uh, just gives the tournament stability that it hasn't had. Well, it's, I mean, the name carries such gravitas. Mm-hmm. It is so well-known. Uh, it, it just it, it makes it such a legitimate tournament. It also... Not that it ever wasn't. No. It's not. But, I mean, but, I mean it, it really solidifies yeah. the, the base of, uh, of funding for the tournament and making right. sure that, you know, these people are going to be around. The tournament's always been significant. It's, it's had its up and ups and downs, but the guy who won the tournament for their first year was, in 1960 was Arnold Palmer. Well, you can't get more significant no. than Arnold Palmer in 1960. And then he wins it again in 62. Uh, and then in 1963, this new guy came along uh, named Nicholas, and he won it. So in the first three years, Jack Nicholas and Arnold Palmer win three of the first four. Pretty good. And then Bob Hope comes in uh, in 1965 and puts his name on it. Even up until this year, when John Rahm wins it. John Rahm was the number two player in the world uh, when he won here. So... The tournament's always been there. It's not a major. But the PGA's you know. made some structural changes that at least this year <clears throat> helped get some of the bigger players in here. Right. Can, can you talk about that a little bit, and is it going to happen next year, since, the designated yeah. tournament? Since American Express has come in, more and more good players have been coming. But this year, uh, the PGA Tour called these designated tournaments. And they, they're $20 million tournaments. Huge. And is this in direct re- yes. retaliation? Uh, or response. Response. Yeah, to competition. Lure. I mean, you, yeah. you, look. You have to compete. You've got to compete. When, they're, when the Lure tournament's throwing that kind of money around, yeah. it's going to prompt a response. Yeah. What you do is, uh, this isn't, uh, when I first moved to California, I heard the governor was Pat Brown. Mm-hmm. And I, what I heard Pat Brown used to do was he would listen to the Republicans because he was a Democrat, Jerry Brown's father. He would listen to what the Republicans were criticizing him on. Then he'd do that. Then when the when, when the election came around, the Republicans didn't have anything to argue about. Well, you did. No, you did do that, didn't you? Oh, yeah. And and he, he did that for a couple of years. I mean, a couple of elections. Yeah. Is, you know... Listen to what your opponents are doing and then say, okay, we'll do that now and steal it <laughs> and make it your own. But um, they don't, but the PGA doesn't have the deep pockets. I mean, like, they can't throw the same level of money. They can't throw the same level of money as the Saudi Arabian Public Trust, which is funding the Live Tour. Uh, PGA's but, got very few oil fields. That being well, said, they, they should work on that. How long does do the Saudis want to throw money at this? Because it's really this is an investment for and, them, and still be uh, still be criticized. Right. And you know they're on television in the United States now on the CW network. And uh, the first time, the first week they were on <laughs> CW network, they actually got uh, lower ratings than a show called America's Funniest Animals. Um, 
I don't know. I don't know how long they want to keep doing that. Lend those shoes. Um, but they have no. I mean, like that is that is the closest thing to an unlimited supply of money that there is. I mean, I think they can shovel money at that for a long time. At, only Un- as long as they choose to. Unlimited yeah. money does not equal unlimited patience. Right. No, that's, right. So you know, d- maybe so ten years ago, I had a sense that. People were talking about the demise of golf yeah. overall. Oh, sure. And particularly in the Coachella Valley. Water usage, people were, uh, home developers were looking at things with trails instead of golf courses and stuff like right. that. It feels like maybe it's turned a corner and it's heading back the other direction towards popularity. I think we can credit that in large part to your play, Randy. <laughs> I mean, you've single-handedly brought the game brought back the game into Coachella Valley. It would be inappropriate for me to say that, but I so appreciate I just, that you did. I mean, people are talking about your golf game. <laughs> Let's get off of me for a moment. <laughs> I'll tell you what happened. As weird as this sounds, uh, the pandemic happened. And you and had to be outside. People were going nuts, bouncing off the walls of their houses. And the, the state, and particularly Riverside County, which was very strict uh, in what they allowed and didn't allow during the uh, pandemic, even shut down golf and golf courses for about three weeks. And those may have been the worst three weeks of my life. <laughs> How often do you because wait? how often do you play golf? Um, in season, not often. I play mostly in the summer because I'm too busy. Right. And because, frankly, the golf courses are too busy. You know, and I don't want to say, "Hey, can I get on your court?" You know, because it, they're trying to make money. When you have time to play, do you play once a week, twice a week, three times? What do you like? I'll try and play once a week. Okay. Yeah. Uh, in the summer, I'll play once a week. Um, in the season, I'll play once a month. And it shows. <laughs> Trust me, it shows. But um, so finally, uh, there was such an uproar about not being able to play golf because golf was, what the golfers were saying was, we are socially distanced. There's four of us on a hole that's 200 yards wide or 200 yards long. How do you, how is that not social distancing? And, uh, uh, you know, they could t- take precautions and put things in the golf carts that separated the two players and so finally the, the the county said okay go play get get out of here people were playing anyway that was the other thing yeah i would get a, a couple of fo- photos a week from people up on the art smith trail uh in palm desert which winds its way behind bighorn golf uh, uh club country club and people were taking pictures of people playing golf on the golf course and sending it to me and saying, what do these people think? They're above the law? And I said, yes, it's Bighorn. Of course they think they're above the law. <laughs> they're Bighorn and they're golfers. What are you, crazy? Yes. Of course. <laughs> so after about three weeks of realizing they couldn't actually stop people inside these <laughs> private courses from playing golf, they said, okay, go play golf. But they still kept things like tennis and pickleball and stuff like that shut down. So people who had quit the game because it was too expensive or they had aged out of the game, started playing golf again. And people who had never played golf started playing golf because it was something to do and be outside. And there was the surge. And suddenly the surge 
took golf across the country, but certainly here in the desert, to much higher levels of participation than had been true for maybe 15 years. Well, there was a financial surge in this valley during that time, too. We had more people with money moving in from the coasts, mm-hmm. and there was just more money yeah. to the people who had it here. So, right, let me for ask. a couple of years, and we're still in the middle of it, even though it's uh, three years later, yeah. I've talked to people from the Southern California Golf Association who say that they expect the surge to go on at least two more years. Wow. All right, but how does does that impact the way we build housing projects because you know heretofore yes prior to the the kind of the lapse in golfers pre-pandemic we would build a community around a golf course right and you would use golf to sell that community right is that still going to be the case going forward or is that paradigm shifting that won't happen again um (laughs) i tell people this and they get stunned the last 18-hole golf course built in this valley was in 2008, 15 years ago. And it was at Fantasy Springs Casino in India. Eagle course Falls called Eagle the Falls. last course built? The last 18-hole regulation golf course built in this valley. And that's not a housing track. No, but it is there for uh, the uh, resort. And, uh, and it's a public golf course, so you and I can go play it. And it's a darn good golf it's course. It's a very mm-hmm. fine golf course. It's a designer by the name of Clive Clark. Yep, it. Clive, who did one of the Indian Wells Golf Resort. Yeah, he did the, the, uh, player, uh, the celebrity course. He also did a course at uh, uh, the Hideaway, hmm. uh, one of the two courses over there in La Quinta. Um, you know, for a long time here, and this is, this, frankly, this goes back to the beginning of, of golf in the desert. Uh, not necessarily O'Donnell in the 1920s or uh, uh, Tamarind. Uh, Indian Palms or a place like that. But if you go to 1951, the first 18 hole golf course built in this valley was Thunderbird Country Club in Rancho Mirage. Okay. And Thunderbird was a failed dude ranch. Okay. And they got a guy uh, named Johnny Dawson, who was a very good amateur golfer um, before the war. Uh, played on, on Walker Cup teams uh, internationally and even won the old Bing Crosby tournament when it was still down in uh, Rancho Santa Fe before it moved before to Pebble Carmel. Beach. Oh, wow. And he came in and developed a golf course for him. And Johnny Dawson, uh, they, they wanted to sell homes. So Johnny Dawson started talking to his friends and say, you know, we're building this place out here. These home lots are 2000 bucks each. Now, if you and I talk to our friends, it doesn't matter, right? But well, I'd he, have was that a, friends he was a member first. at Lakeside Country Club in Los Angeles. So his friends at the club were Bob Hope and then Bing Crosby and Desi Arnaz and Lucille Ball and all these people. And all these people, some of whom already had homes in the valley, like Bob Hope, uh, said, yeah, we'll go out and buy a place at Thunderbird. And that was really, I mean, it was the start of Celebrities in the Desert because that goes back to La Quinta Resort and and, uh, people like that. Uh, I mean, places like that attracting uh, Hollywood stars. But this was golf. And as I understand it, it was a place for Gentile golfers. Thunderbird's biggest problem was that they did not allow Jews. 
So about a year later, a bunch of people got together and built a golf course. It was not specifically a Jewish club in Tamarisk. Tamarisk. But, but, it but did. the Marx Brothers were heavily involved in that. Oh, the Marx Brothers were there, and Jack Benny, and Danny Kaye. And that's why and Sinatra ultimately ended up there. Yes. And, but it was never restricted to Jews. But so it was within open. Two, within two years, yeah. we had Thunderbird Country Club and Tamaris Country Club. And, of course, all the celebrities at Thunderbird knew all the celebrities at Tamaris, and pretty quickly it became... Uh, uh, kind of cross-pollinated, if you will. But uh, anyway, so Thunderbird was basically a, an attempt to sell real estate. Still over there. And, you know, four years later, it held a, a Ryder Cup. Um, we had another Ryder Cup in 1959 at El Dorado. All these places were trying to sell homes. All these golf courses got built. Well, this was true through... Mm, through at least the 1990s. And oh, then yeah, things slowed Indi- down. Indian Palms. Well, Indian Palms was originally built in 1946. Nine-hole golf course. Uh, it was uh, um, Jackie Cochran and her husband, Floyd Odlin, owned Cochran Ranch there. And they said, well, we're going to build a golf course there. So uh, she had a friend named Helen Detweiler who had flown... <laughs> bombers with her <laughs> during World War II. Not in combat, um, but ferried uh, bombers across the ocean wow. when they were built here and took them over there. Yeah. Someone's got to fly them over there. Right. Well, Helen happened to be a really good golfer, and she was, in fact, one of the 13 founding members of the LPGA in 1950. But uh, in 1946, uh, Helen was talking to her friend Jackie and Jackie said we're going to build five holes out there and uh, Helen said you can't build five holes yeah, five minimum, holes is not a golf course minimum of nine right and Jackie and Floyd said well okay we'll do nine but we're going to put you in charge of building and so Helen Detweiler in 1946 designed the first nine holes at Indian Palms okay so in 1946 We've got a woman designing golf courses in the Coachella Valley. That's not happening anywhere, hardly. And then they made her the head pro. Said, you run the joint. (laughs) And she stayed there uh, until Thunderbird opened. And then they made her their women teaching professional at Thunderbird. And uh, uh, she's in the LPJ Hall of Fame and all this stuff. But but again, uh, that was more about... Jackie and Floyd just wanting a place for their but friends. It wasn't built out until oh, much years later. later. It's yeah. 27 holes now. Yeah. Um, because when I moved here 20 years ago, that was kind of the newest spot. Yeah. They'd, it, they'd built it out and they were selling yeah. homes like crazy. Right. They had actually, uh, um, Eisenhower, uh, Dwight Eisenhower, actually used uh, Indian poems uh, when it was Cochran Ranch. Uh, as a place to go and write his memoir. Really? Wow. Yes. Even though he was a member of El Dorado? He was a member. He has, it still has a a bust of him behind the home he owned on the 11th hole at El Dorado. Um, he first came to the desert in 1954. 
uh, and at the invitation of a friend of his who was a, a big uh, baker. We owned bakeries in Los Angeles. And said, come on out and play. You got to play, you know. And Eisenhower, for as much uh, grief as some people uh, have given both Obama and Trump for playing golf in, during their administration, it's estimated Eisenhower played 800 rounds of golf. <laughs> he had a home right on the course. In, right? <laughs> in eight years. That's a round every third day. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot of golf. And he was a member at uh, Augusta National. In fact, there was a very famous tree in the 17th fairway that was named the Eisenhower Tree. But uh, anyway, Eisenhower came out here in 54, and he played Thunderbird, and he played Tamarisk, and he fell in love with the desert. Aren't there, uh, if I were, I'm trying to recall this correctly, on the Sunnylands course, aren't there the Eisenhower palm trees? Yeah. Because um, he would look out at the golf course and he th- really felt like there should be palm trees on a California golf and there were not. Annenberg specifically built uh, that golf course, um, or had that golf course built, uh, with no palm trees. He didn't want any palm trees for some reason. And uh, Eisenhower played it and said, what are you, nuts? And when California. You, and when Dwight Eisenhower tells you, what are you, nuts? So you go out and you plant two palm trees. So even Walter Annenberg, when Dwight Eisenhower tells you, what are you, nuts? Well, I, I had the privilege of playing uh, Sunnylands. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and remember I, who you played it with? You were there. I there. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I remember that. Patrick, well, Larry, Larry, <laughs> Patrick. Well, so I, and I think it was Mary Perry who was working for Sunnylands yes. at the time. And I might have said... You should have a media tournament on Sunnylands because, you know, they were trying to prom- promote it at, in its new incarnation. And so they did. I'm not taking credit for that, but I was one of the people who said you should do it. Take and, credit. And so, yeah, Larry and myself and, and, and a lot of other members of the media got yeah. to play that very famous and really kind of sacred nine holes of golf. And that's and I actually hit a golf ball directly into the Eisenhower Palms. Oh, nice. Yeah. Well, I just... Next I wasn't aiming for them. I was not aiming for them. It, huh. is, it huh. is the most unique golf course in the Coachella Valley. Really? Because it's nine holes, but n- normally on a nine-hole course, when you play uh, 18 holes, you just play it, and then you play it from a separate set of tees um, on each hole. Not that golf course. You play the first nine holes, and then you turn left, and you play down four, for the 10th hole and then you play three backwards and then you yeah. play back again and then you play the fourth hole a third time and then you go around and play the rest of the golf <laughs> it's like I, I tell people it's like a snake swallowing its own tail um, it's really a remarkable piece of work it was that was uh, I mean that's the greatest round of golf I'll ever play just because of where it was played oh, and, and it, you know and then you go in and they're showing you the golf ball that's got Richard Nixon's name on it that they pulled out of the lake and you know <laughs> like so he hit it into the water you know um, <laughs> Reagan used to play there uh, a lot a lot he would always come out during uh, uh, the, the New Year's era time that was um, the biggest and greatest New Year's party I mean wh- who wouldn't want to be at that New Year at that New Year's Eve party yeah and uh, Nixon played there and Kennedy played there and any any golf any president who's played golf and most of them have not all of them 
uh, Lyndon Johnson didn't play golf. Jimmy Carter didn't have much yeah. use for the game. Um, but most presidents somehow, some way, have come around to play golf. And so many of them have played in this desert. Yeah. Uh, Eisenhower being probably the biggest name, Gerald Ford being the other big name, because, of course, he... Well, if, he you were, if you were retired here and lived, lived on Thunderbird, lived at Thunderbird, had two homes right next to each other. One um, was for the Secret Service, correct? No, well, one was a suite of offices, and the Secret Service was was based there. Based there, yeah. And then right next door it was the the home that he and Betty used as a residence. And they would come out if you hit the golf ball a little too close, right? They would. I I went over throw it back to you. I was uh, I went over and interviewed Mr. Ford uh, for the first book I did, which was. Uh, uh, 50 Years of Hope, which was a history of the Bob Hope tournament. And I'm sitting there. <laughs> I drive up, and, and there's a guy at a gate. <laughs> and he says, yes. And I go, yes, I have a pres- uh, I have an appointment with President Ford. And he looked down at me and said, you do? <laughs> um, <laughs> and I, he went back, and he checked. He said, yeah, yeah sure, enough, sure enough. And I drove in. And I'm sitting there in this big, huge, what would be a living room. And there's this big, huge, round shag carpet. And it takes me a couple of minutes to realize this shag carpet has been woven into the image of the seal of the President of the United States. And then uh, his secretary. um, Penny. Peggy. Penny. Penny. I was going to say Peggy, but Penny. uh, Said, this way. And I walked up, and he meets me at the door. And I said, Mr. President, <laughs> it's a pleasure to meet you. And he goes, I read your stuff all the time. <laughs> and oh, it's like, man, man what, am I, what am I doing here? You know, uh, and he was a very nice uh, but older gentleman. He was very didn't ge- suffer fools gladly at the time. I, I met him once very early on, and, and he was extremely charming. Yes. But certainly had an edge. Yes. Can, um, can you believe that the direction of your life took you to the point where you were using the words, I have an appointment with, with President, President Ford? I got an, uh, well, the other, one, the other weird thing in my life, among the about a billion, uh, <laughs> is uh, when the Clinton Foundation uh, lopped on to the tournament here. Uh, we were trying like the devil to get an interview with Bill Clinton. Our political writers and this and that. Everybody's trying to get a, an interview with Clinton. I'm sitting at my desk one day, back when we used to have desks in offices. and uh, <laughs> When you have to, had an office. And the phone rings, and it's this guy, and he says, Hi, my name's Craig. Um, we understand you're the golf writer there. I said, yes. He said, um, so you're aware that... President Clinton is, uh, is coming to be. Uh, yes, we're all aware of this. We're hyper aware of this. He says, well, we didn't want to talk to you. Well, we, we wanted to know if you'd be interested in an interview with the, Clinton, with the president. And, you know, I picked the phone back up <laughs> and say, yeah, uh, actually, that would be fantastic. Uh, he says, well, you know, we don't want to talk about politics. We want to talk about the tournament and, the, and golf. And I said, yeah. When can we do this? And they said, yeah, you know, a couple of days from now. And I ran in and told the executive editor, I, I think we have an interview with Clinton. And the guy said, great. Who's doing the interview? 
<laughs> and I was very nice about it. <laughs> well, I, they called me. And so for the next five years, Bill Clinton and I uh, did an interview. Some of, the, some of it was in person. Most of it was over the phone, but well before the tournament. And it was like, you know, uh, on the other hand, I would also say that, you know, if my mother was dead, she would have rolled over in her grave knowing that I was dealing with Bill Clinton, <laughs> who she referred to strictly during his presidency as that man. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, you, you run into that and you go, well, let's see, I've met Bob Hope and I've met Gerald Ford and I've met Bill Clinton. I've met all these uh, you know, uh, uh, not to say nothing of the uh, of the golfers yeah. that I've I've uh, dealt with. I mean, I, I always tell people that one of the weirdest moments of my life was sitting in the press tent at the Bob Hope, and Arnold Palmer walked in and looked at me and said, "Hi, Larry." And it's like what? <laughs> what? You, so you, you're you're Arnold Palmer. I'm. Larry Bohannon Cub reporter at the Desert Sun. What are you doing? <laughs> so I want to ask you about that. The, the, the first time I talked to you, you, you mentioned that you got into golf because there was an event and somebody needed to cover it at, at early on at the Desert Sun. Yeah, they. when I was hired here in 1986, I think they knew they wanted me to be the golf writer. But I was hired as a general assignment reporter. And first, my first assignment at the Desert Sun was College of the Desert Football. And um, were they a powerhouse back then? They were very good. They were nine and two that year. Wow! Won a won a uh, won a bowl game. Uh, John Marmon was their head coach. They had an Irish kicker. I remember that. Um, but um, I, you know, he was. Uh, I, I they didn't have anybody to cover golf. They had people who covered golf, but they didn't have anybody who really played golf, understood golf. I had played golf in high school. I was into golf. They said, you're the golf writer. And I, was that okay? And I thought about it for about three seconds and went, yeah. And uh, so really pretty much every, ever since then, I've been the golf writer. I still do other stuff. I still do high school football. and You just came from tennis. covering a car crashing into the canal. <laughs> a I car mean, and a canal. You're a breaking news guy, too. Yeah. So, but, uh, and so you're sitting here today, obviously the peak of his career <laughs> at this point. I'm sure there's still stuff in the future. Absolutely. I know there are some people who say, if I could only get to sit down with Randy Flores. <laughs> From that moment <laughs> yes. to now, <laughs> you've got to sit back sometimes and just kind of shake your head. Sure. What, what's, what's the one personality that if you leave this job today, the one personality you'll say, that career gave me the chance to meet this person? Arnold Palmer. Arnold Palmer. Period. End of discussion. Yeah. Um, you know, to, to have the ability to talk with him and be in his home and, and, and do interviews with him and interview him at the restaurant. And, uh, uh, you know, he's, he was everything that people thought, think he is. Uh, he was uh, very thoughtful of people. He was very concerned about his fans and people he was talking to. And uh, it would always look you in the eye. And not just me, but if he came in here right now, would be great uh and he came over he would shake your hand and look you in the eye and say hello wow. that's what he was and and that's who i would have wanted arnie to be to, well yeah. and to go beyond uh, that you know he, he won uh, uh 62 pga tour events seven majors 
one of the most impactful athletes uh, of the 20th century. Uh, so to get to know him, now there have been others. I mean, Annika Sorensen, you know, the best female golfer perhaps of all time. We've gotten to know Jack a little bit, uh, Nicholas. Um, certainly I had a relationship with Phil that uh, doesn't exist anymore because <laughs> he's just not here anymore. Um, uh, but other guys like John Cook, who lived here forever and ever and ever and won 11 times on the PGA Tour. And is the guy you want living next door to you and ha you want you and your family to have weekend barbecues with him and his family. So he just me, retired, right? He just uh, played his last official senior event. He's yeah. 65 now. Uh, he still works for Golf Channel. But uh, so, so I want to ask you, you get something to know else. Those guys is unbelievable too. But Arnold is at the top of the list. Well, I had a, one opportunity to interview Arnold Palmer at his home, and I, I agree 100 percent with what you said. Yeah. I mean, he was a remarkable human being. I saw him months into Masters. I'm walking one way, he's walking the other. He looks over at me and goes, "Hey, Larry. Hey, Larry. That's that. <laughs> no, come on. What are you kidding me? There's nothing better than that. You know. So, Larry, you did something really important for this valley a few years ago and you and i talked about this before um, we share a little bit of history as members of the reluctant brotherhood yes how's your health now i'm fine um uh what randy's uh, referring to is that uh, back in uh 2019 19. december 5th not that i remember <laughs> um I had can uh, uh, surgery for prostate cancer. And you made the very, very important decision to not keep that private, to share that with the community. I wrote a column uh, for the Desert Sun about it. Um, uh, I wasn't going to. Uh, I was going to keep it a private thing. And then I remembered that I'm a writer and writers write. And uh, again, I was almost compelled, as it turns out. You know, we, we're weird people, we journalists. We don't want to do anything, and then we end up doing it anyway. I didn't want to write that. You didn't column. want the story about you. That's something yeah. that you've always believed. And uh, so I wrote this uh, this column. I remember the very opening line was uh, uh, when my urologist told me that I had cancer. I, the first thing I thought was, why wasn't he reacting to the 5.4 earthquake that was running <laughs> through the room at the moment? Oh man. Um, but you know, I learned a lot about it, and then I, I and and. When I wrote that column, I could not believe the unbelievable response I got from people. People I'd never met before. People who only knew me as a one-inch high mugshot in, in, in the desert sun. Or maybe even had to see the mugshot, just saw the byline. And called me with uh, well wishes and prayers and advice. I went through this in 10 years ago or 20 years ago. You should go to this hospital. You should go to this doctor. You should do this. You should do that. People just reaching out. Um, and it, first of all, it justified my decision to go ahead and write it. But it was also a way to show that sometimes we write stuff in the newspaper or we're on television uh, doing stories, and you go, is anybody out there? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, am, am I just doing this? Uh, In an echo chamber? Yeah. Like, wh wh where is, but... And then... And that then obviously resonated with These people. people come out of the woodwork. 
And you go, oh, God. And it re- renews your, not just your faith in people, but it renews your desire to do the job because there are people out there and they are reading what you read. Well, it says something else, too, Larry, that um, not every writer could have said that and gotten the response you got. The way you have ingrained yourself into this community over these years, people felt like they knew you. Ingrained is a good way of saying you're old. um, (laughs) You know, there's something I think very important about that. And, you know, 37 years, which you are approaching at the Desert Sun, there is something to be said for longevity in, in this business that we share. Uh, and I think it's it's very important. Yeah. And, and I think in this valley in particular, people value yeah. the voices that they recognize and know and have gotten to enjoy over the years. Um, I remember when, when Bruce Fessier retired a couple of years ago. He'd been at the paper for 40 years. Yeah. He was our entertainment and society guy. Well, he didn't retire. Didn't he, retire. He, no, no. He left the paper. He left the paper. He left the paper. <laughs> he kicked us to the curb and... <laughs> Um, but uh, there was a lot of that, too, because, again, he'd been here 40 years, and people would read his reviews or his, uh, you know, Bruce was, was very well known for the obituaries that he would write for people in the desert. And when Bruce left, there were actually celebrities who said, who's going to write my obituary? <laughs> I mean, legitimately, we're talking about that. Um <laughs> You know, there are a couple of people uh, in, uh, in the television industry around here, uh, John White, Karen Devine, who've been here 30, 25 years. Uh, Karen and I went to the same college, not at the same time, but we both went to Cal State Fullerton. Um, uh, and then there's a lot of transient stuff that happens here, where uh, writers are here for a year, or reporters here for, uh, television reporters here for a year, year and a half, and they're out of here. I can always tell when a reporter's not going to stay very long, because after about six months, they look up at me and say, "Why are there no trees on your mountains?" And you go, "They're not going to. They're not going to stay going to make it long. They get hot air in the summer. That's right. They don't get it." Uh, I I think it was really important that you told that story uh, about writing your column about your cancer diagnosis, because we do. You know, I think often those of us who work in the media way what we want to share and and what we don't want to share but one of the things that i you know you're in people's homes every day they read your column and you're part of their routine so you become just kind of part of the daily part of life and so it was important i think for you to tell that story because it's 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 something to share about yourself but it's also something important that people should know well and if you as larry bohannon tell men to go out and get their psa checked Right. They're going to go out and get their PSA check. Right. I hope, I hope some people did that. I, I know a couple of people who, who said that. Uh, and, and if it's one or two people, it's enough. Yeah. You know, but use that as a platform, and you have a platform, so it's good to use But it. i got to tell you, when I first got into this business, platform was not supposed to be part of the job. No. Um, in fact, my first journalism class at Cal State Fullerton uh, the woman got stood up and said, do not, rule number one, do not be part of the story. Right. Do not be part of the story. Now, 
Uh, the business has changed so much. Well, God, we're fighting Instagram. Everybody and, has you know, changed. All of these, you know, now, but uh, it's, so many people are the store. And it's become about becoming a brand. Right. And influencer. Know, the, the biggest brand we ever had at the Desert Sun was Bruce. Um, he mentioned that to me. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Did he say that? He didn't. That, uh, he might have said it. Without question, <laughs> I think it was Bruce Fessier. There is no doubt. Um, but uh, somehow, way through 36 years, 36 and a half years, covering uh, all those golf tournaments, writing a couple of books, um, uh, my name has gotten out there, and I, off, I appreciate it. Sometimes I'm not terribly comfortable with it, I had a, an old uh, co-writer uh, at our paper. He used to call me Larry Legend. <laughs> and I would try and stop him from that because it's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> I'm just I'm just the golf guy. Yeah. You won't call me golf guy. I'm good with that. The legend part's got to go away. And now I drive to Mission Hills Country Club, and there's a guy at the gate, and he says, Larry Legend. And it's like, oh, oh man. It's it. become we gotta get we gotta get rid of that. <laughs> we really do. Well, listen, right, we're, I, we're drawing to a close. Yeah, but I'm right. thrilled to have Larry Legend on the episode. <laughs> Larry Legend yeah. is fantastic. <laughs> All right, uh, we we always talk about music, but before we get to music, your five favorite golf courses to play in the desert. Yes, uh, the South Course at Ironwood Country okay. Club. Uh, I love that golf course. The Dinosaur Tournament Course at Mission Hills Country yeah. Club. Uh, is a great golf course. I hate playing the stadium course at PGA West, but I enjoy playing it at the same time. It's because it reminds me how inadequate I am. But it's got to be the hardest course in the desert. Um, close to it. It's pretty close to it. Uh, pretty what, close. What to do you it. think is the hardest? If not stadium, it's stadium. Okay. <laughs> it's got it. It, supposedly, it's not stadium. The, the hardest golf course supposedly in this valley ever was the original Ironwood. Oh. Built in 1976 by Desmond Muirhead and Arnold Palmer, and it got washed out by one of those hundred-year floods that come around every ten years. <laughs> that was, but uh, it was, was supposedly. I felt that it was supposedly the toughest <laughs> golf course ever built in this valley. I love Eagle Falls; it's near my home. I love the eleventh hole; it's a drivable par four. It's a lot of fun. Right. Do you drive it? I, I've been managed nice, to get over there once nice. or twice. <laughs> Uh, and then um, I, I like the uh, resort course at Tockwoods Creek, uh, which is uh, kind of on a different level, but a lot of fun to play. So uh, those would be them. Uh, All time, clearly, uh, I played the old course at St. Andrews. Wow, that was fun. Oh. Played Pebble Beach and Spyglass. Those are great golf courses. Played the stadium course at uh, the TPC uh, Sawgrass. Where they played. How'd the you do on 17? I hit it three feet. Seriously? I hit it three feet, and as the ball left my club, the skies <laughs> opened up. We'd been dodging rain all day. And I got a bucket hat on. I've got a leather gri leather grip on my putter. I'm worried about that. I get up there and I shanked a putt, and I walked away with the three. So I just tell people I made par, even though what <laughs> I really did was shank a birdie putt. <laughs> Larry's a pretty good golf. Well, I'm sure he and, is. Um, <laughs> he must be because he's, he's never invited me. <laughs> and there's a golf course in Ireland called uh, La Hinch that I played and am in love with and have a picture of uh, in my living room of me well, playing the 12th hole. Ostensibly, this started out as a m music 
topical yes. podcast. Okay. It's never been that. Uh, but we always like to ask people a song, a band, a group, a lyric that has meaning in your life, something that, that really kind of touches you. And, mm. Bruce um, came with a page of, of <laughs> I'll tell tired you, material. I'll tell you this. Um, I love the blues. And by the blues, I mean Muddy Waters, B.B. King, T-Bone Walker. Honest goodness, blues. Um, certainly Robert Johnson, uh, Charlie Patton, though that kind of blues. B.B. King in particular. But I'm also a classic rock guy. Uh, but when I was in Cal, at Cal State Fullerton in college, I got into new wave and punk and... You know all this stuff. And I, I I just listen to music, um, and I'm a huge Elton John fan. Huge Elton John fan. Uh, he has a great song uh, "Where New, Where To Now, St. Peter." Uh, and there's a, a lyric, uh, a line in it. This is uh, "Where To Now, St. Peter." If it's true, I'm in your hands. I may not be a Christian, but I've done all one man can. Ooh, uh, which is just poetry that from Bernie Taupin, his his writer. And there's another line from a band called Concrete Blonde, uh, uh, whose lead singer uh, lives up in Joshua Tree, uh, Jeanette Napolitano. And it's called Dance Along the Edge. And there's a line in there that says, uh, and when do we start, when do we stop searching for what we're searching for? And when it comes, we question love and try for more. And it's like, you know, that that talks, that speaks amazing. Took my breath away right there. All right, so you're a lyrics guy. <laughs> wow. I'm a lyrics guy. You're a lyrics guy. Because um, some people are in it for the music. I'm a lyrics guy. But I, I and I appreciate people who are lyrics guys. Uh, I, you know, I think when you listen to it, and that's why I've always been a Sinatra guy. Yes. Because Sinatra sang the lyrics. I called you once. I was going to put a list together of my top 10 all-time perfect songs. And I, I think I actually messaged you, and you told me a uh, summer breeze. Oh, it was summer wind. A summer wind. It wasn't big, bad Leroy Brown. But as it turns out, <laughs> as it turns out, I never, uh, I never put Sinatra on my list because I just decided to keep it to the rock, uh, the rock genre that I'm more familiar with. And uh, strangely enough, the first song I put on there was a song called "California Dreamin'" by. <laughs> By the Mamas and the Papas, I think it's just a great pop song. And it was written in New York, overlooking Central Park on a snowy day. They really were California dreaming. Larry, uh, we're going to have to have you on again. I mean, by the, by the time we bring you on again, we will have gotten through the Masters. Uh, live Golf will be somewhere. Will it live on? A different 48 golfers. But, Larry, this has been amazing. Every time I get the chance to get together with you, I learn something You, you also, after we stop recording, Randy has a number of questions about the Anna. <laughs> <laughs> he wants to know who Anna was, why they named a tournament after her. And what she has to do with LIV. <laughs> what does she have to do with the desert? <laughs> yeah. Larry, thanks for being here. All right. My thanks pleasure. again to my partner, Patrick Evans. Patrick, thanks again. Randy, How much these fun is this? have rapidly become my favorite afternoon, and I'm just saying that for the bourbon, but also the conversation is very nice. And the company. That too. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and I'd also like to thank the engineer and producer, John McMullen, for helping us out. Thank you for being here for another episode in the center of the Coachella Valley universe. 
Skip Page's Little Bar. We've got so many great guests lined up. You'll want to keep tuning back in week after week. Big Conversations Little Bar. Join us. Thanks for listening to Big Conversations Little Bar. Join Randy and Patrick next time as we keep the conversation going right here on Big Conversations Little Bar. Little Bar.